Grab a Bible and turn with me once again to the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 21, looking at verses uh, 1 through 9. Uh, There are certainly occasions for topical sermons, but our ordinary pattern of preaching here at Trinity is to work through books of the Bible chapter by chapter to hear what God has to say. And so we're continuing uh, our series through the book of Deuteronomy. We've come to Deuteronomy 21 verses 1 through 9 where Israel is given instruction um, for what to do in the case of an unsolved murder. Deuteronomy 21, verses 1 through 9, let's hear the word of the Lord. If in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess, someone is found slain, lying in the open country, and it is not known who killed him, then your elders and your judges shall come out. And they shall measure the distance to the surrounding cities. And the elders of the city that is nearest to the slain man shall take a heifer that has never been worked and that has not pulled in a yoke. And the elders of that city shall bring the heifer down to a valley with running water which is neither plowed nor sown and shall break the heifer's neck there in the valley. Then the priests... The sons of Levi shall come forward, for the Lord your God has chosen them to minister to him and to bless in the name of the Lord. And by their word, every dispute and every assault shall be settled. And all the elders of that city nearest to the slain man shall wash their hands over the heifer whose neck was broken in the valley, and they shall testify, Our hands did not shed this blood, nor did our eyes see it shed. Accept atonement, O Lord, for your people, Israel, whom you have redeemed. And do not set the guilt of innocent blood in the midst of your people, Israel, so that their blood guilt be atoned for. So you shall purge the guilt of innocent blood from your midst when you do what is right in the sight of the Lord. Well, there are two often competing social theories that I think we're all familiar with. The one is individualism, which prizes the rights and freedoms of the individual. And then secondly, there's what's known as collectivism, which emphasizes and prioritizes the community over the individual. Those two social theories, how people relate and, and live in relation to one another, raise a number of, of questions. What's, what's more important? Uh, individual freedom or collective responsibility? Should we be more concerned with uh, personal choice or social responsibilities and obligations? What, what matters most when push really comes to shove, the value of individuality or the importance of solidarity within community. I think our culture, our polarized world, often pits these two dimensions of human life against each other. But one of the things I want us to appreciate this morning is how the moral vision of Scripture and God's creative design teaches us to avoid this false and fruitless dichotomy 
The Bible, in fact, dismantles the twin errors of individualism on the one hand and collectivism on the other. And so with that in mind, let's consider this passage in two parts. Uh, First, this issue of corporate responsibility. And then secondly, the way of atonement. Uh, Deuteronomy 21 verses 1 through 9 describes a hypothetical situation where a man who appears to have been murdered is found lying dead in a field and nobody knows who did it. Nobody knows who's responsible. But according to Deuteronomy 21, the unsolvable nature of this case does not permit Israel to do nothing. The leaders of Israel cannot throw up their hands and simply say, well, we don't know who's guilty here, and then go on with life as normal, because after all, a death has occurred. And if left unaddressed, it will defile the whole nation. It will bring down blood guilt upon the people. This individual act of murder will bring down blood guilt not only upon the individual murderer, but the entire community of which he is a part. Is that not what the text says? Is that not what this passage clearly teaches? The unmistakable assumption operating in this text, which we find specifically stated in verse 8, notice notice that the prayer does not ask for forgiveness for an individual criminal, but cries out for mercy on behalf of the whole nation. Accept atonement, O Lord, for your people, Israel. Why? That should be, that's probably the question that comes to mind. It's the question that came to my mind. Why? Why is this necessary, right? Aren't we talking about an individual crime here? And why is national atonement necessary for an individual sin committed by an unknown criminal who appears, in this case, to have acted entirely alone? This, This assumption of some degree of corporate responsibility, let's just be honest, it's profoundly disturbing. It's jarring to our individualistic sensibilities. It bothered me as I studied it and thought through its implications. It is certainly disturbing in our individualistic world. You know, imagine, for example, if you heard someone praying a similar prayer that implied that you bore some degree, some kind of of responsibility for a murder that you had nothing to do with except for the fact that it occurred in close proximity to where you lived. You you might be tempted to say, hey, hold on a second. I didn't have anything to do with that. Well, perhaps it's precisely in these places where the Bible seems the most disturbing to us that we need to pay the closest attention. The the thing that, that ought to stand out to us in this passage is not the oddity of a cow, this this ritual of a cow having its neck broken in an uncultivated valley down by a stream. The thing that really ought to jump out to us 
is the response of an entire community through its leaders to a single human death. In contrast with our society today, you know, a death has to be particularly gruesome or unjust. Perhaps a young child is killed to even make the news, right? And even when it makes the news, we're fairly bothered with it. We've, as a society, lost any concept of corporate responsibility for blood guilt having rejected God to whom we might be corporately responsible. Innocent blood is shed every day and barely anyone lifts a finger. I think it's at least a sign that as a society we have lost the sense of the sanctity of human life. Just think about the sobering implications of this in light of the thousands of abortions that take place every year, not not only nationwide, not only statewide, but, but here in the city of Johnstown. Then, then think about this idea of collective responsibility that's spoken of in our passage. It is a disturbing thing to contemplate. Unfortunately, many of us in modern Western society have lost a, a very basic and a very biblical sense of solidarity in sin and judgment. We've, we've come to think of ourselves in almost purely individualistic terms that cut us off, that sever us from life in community, life in relation to those around us. Although we, we often assume that God deals with us purely on an individual basis, the, the Bible has some other things we ought to consider. In Scripture, God not only deals with individuals as individuals and families as families and peoples as peoples, but nations as nations, as whole nations. And so at the very least, this passage is teaching us that our individual actions do indeed have community consequences, both for good but also for evil. Just take the story of Achan as one example in, in Joshua chapter 7. The well-known story of Achan who uh, took and hid some of the spoils from their victory over Jericho and placed them within his tent. Right, So something done in secret by an individual. And because of that individual act, Israel suffered defeat in their next battle at Ai. Because of something that an individual did in secret, the whole nation suffered defeat in battle. All because of the sin of one man. And notice, listen to how this sin is described in Joshua 7 verse 1. But the people of Israel broke faith. Achan does that, and here's the description. But the people of Israel broke faith, in regard to the devoted things, for Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, notice the, the emphasis on family relationships, of the tribe of Judah took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. It's astonishingly, the whole nation is said to have broken faith because of the actions of a single man. 
As a result of this one man's sin, the nation experienced defeat in battle after, and after Achan's uh, deceit and wrongdoing was brought to light, not only he, but his entire family and belongings and livestock were destroyed. So there's just, there's just no debate here. There's no question about it. Corporate responsibility, communal solidarity, is a biblical concept. It's a biblical concept. It's a biblical category. You know, it's cliche, but it's a, it's a cliche for a reason. No man is an island. Of course, there are important qualifications and distinctions that need to and must be made, but this much is true. Corporate responsibility is a biblical category. It's one of the reasons why the Bible is full of corporate confessions of sin, which really gives voice to this reality. Even though we may not be directly involved, Scripture teaches us to accept collective responsibility and to make corporate confessions of sins in which we may be socially implicated. This is precisely what we find here in Deuteronomy 21, verse 8. And it's not hard to multiply numerous examples we find throughout scriptures. Let me just mention one, the model prayer. The prayer that Jesus taught us to pray in the Lord's Prayer teaches us to pray this way. It does not teach us to pray, forgive me my debts, though we can certainly pray that way and should pray that way. The Bible teaches us to pray personal confession of sin. But the Lord's Prayer, the model prayer, teaches us to pray, forgive us our debts. In other words, every time we pray the Lord's Prayer, we are making a corporate confession of sin in solidarity with all of God's children, all of those who call upon God the Father in Jesus' name. This is how Jesus taught us to pray. And it was in light of this reality, in, in light of this reality that we're trying to think through this morning, the reality of corporate responsibility, that back in 2016, the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church in America voted overwhelmingly in favor of an overture that recognized, confessed, and condemned uh, our past racial sins. This corporate confession, you can go online and read it, uh, this corporate confession acknowledged that many of those who were our founding denominational leaders, founding member churches, Founding members failed to live up to our confessional and biblical doctrinal standards by, by not only refusing to support, but also individually and congregationally working against ethnic unity in the church. At times, even barring African Americans from worshiping in services in the history of Southern Presbyterianism, missing and twisting the Bible to support racial segregation, failing to speak out prophetically against racial discrimination and not actively supporting to, to give basic human and biblical rights to African Americans. Now, some argue that this confession was, was inappropriate since the PCA 
was not even officially formed as a denomination when many of these things were actually occurring in the 60s and, and prior to that. Right? Most of it occurred before the PCA was formed in 1973, but the over, overture prevailed because the assembly understood and recognized that the PCA is part of a continuing church that bears a measure of corporate responsibility for these historic sins. In other words, these were our people who were doing these things. With that said, it's important to make distinctions where the Bible makes distinctions, right? We must not conflate individual and corporate responsibilities as though there's no meaningful difference between the two. And I think if you pay attention to our text, it doesn't do that. So notice, for example, the big difference between the direct guilt of the individual who's personally responsible for the act of murder and the, what we could call the indirect guilt of the community that nevertheless incurs some measure of responsibility for the, for the evil that has occurred within their midst. It's, it's related, but it's distinct. And the reality of that distinction, I think, is on full display in verse 7, where the leaders of the people are instructed to plead with God to accept atonement on behalf of the entire nation. And you notice that they are required to profess their own innocence. Right? So they, these words are put in their mouths. They shall say, our hands did not shed this blood, nor did our eyes see it shed. So you see, there is a distinction here. They did not commit the act, nor at the time did they know about it. But now that the corpse has been found, now that they do know about it, they are required to do something. And this distinction is, I think, so important for us to appreciate. To, to fail to recognize this distinction is to violate a fundamental biblical principle of justice that is perhaps most clearly expressed in Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 20. It says, The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. Now, that raises all kinds of questions, at least it does in my mind, about how to relate these different passages of Scripture that we've already mentioned this morning. For example, how, how is Ezekiel 18, verse 20, compatible with the punishment of Achan and his family in Joshua chapter 7? We can't go down all of these different rabbit trails this morning and try to answer all of the questions we might have, but what I'm after this morning is we need to understand and we need to embrace this fundamental principle of biblical morality, okay? If as we look at and compare these different texts of Scripture, I think we discover a basic principle that we need to maintain. And it's this. Any moral system that reduces moral responsibility, either in the direction of mere individualism or in an undifferentiated collectivism, is unbiblical. Any moral system which reduces moral responsibility in terms of pure individualism or undifferentiated collectivism is unbiblical. That's a principle we 
we probably need to relearn today. And we need to think through and, and think about how to apply today. It's something we need to understand. Both individuality and solidarity in community are creative aspects of God's design for our moral life as human beings. And this truth, I think, is, is most clearly set on display in a beautiful way in the Christian life, in the context of the covenant community of the church of Jesus Christ. The church, after all, is a corporate entity made up of individuals. One of the, one of the primary descriptions of the church, the church is the body of Christ. Individually members we are. So when one member suffers, we all suffer. When one member is honored, we all rejoice together. Or as Paul explains in Romans 12, verse 5, we, the, the covenant community of the church, we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Do you see it? Do you see the picture? Individuals in solidarity with one another. There's nothing that I do that does not affect you. There's nothing that you do that does not affect the body. We are members of one another. We are not mere or isolated individuals. We cannot think of ourselves in those terms as Christians. And so I wonder, does that inform, does that inform how we live? Do you see yourself as living in solidarity with the people here, the people around you this morning? Do you see yourself as a member of a body made up of many other members? Do, do you know that your individual actions affect the entire body for good or for ill? Are you ever tempted to fly solo? Or are you ever tempted to judge the whole community by the actions of a single individual. I think we've got work to do here because we live in a culture that on the one hand uh, praises a kind of rugged individualism and on the other hand, when it suits us, abuses the moral category of solidarity. And we have to resist the tendency, I think, in either direction. Listen to Romans 12.5 again. We, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Now here we find and discover the, the profound affirmation Scripture gives to both the one and the many, but also the, the dynamic interplay that exists between them. For we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one of another. You see, Paul just refuses to let us reduce it in either direction. We are not called to a life of isolation, nor do we find our individuality swallowed up or erased within the body of Christ. In fact, the truth is we become who we really are, who we've been created and saved to be within the body of Christ, where the Holy Spirit makes a new creation. 
Here's the truly wonderful thing. God's creative design of individuality and solidarity in community are being realized in the church of Jesus Christ. And that brings us to the second thing I want us to think about for a few moments together, the way of atonement. Although on the one hand, Deuteronomy 21 may be a profoundly disturbing text to our individualistic sensibilities today, it's also an incredibly gracious text because its primary purpose is to show the way of atonement. And that means it ultimately shows us Jesus who without broken bone shed his blood to take away our guilt. But one of the lessons, one of the lessons I think we should take away from this passage, if we step back from the details and think about what is God communicating to his people in this passage, I think one of the takeaways is God does not want his people languishing away in guilt. He wants them to know the way of atonement. You notice that immediately after giving the details of this hypothetical situation of a man found murdered in a field, God immediately gives instruction for how to make atonement. How to to deal with the situation so that atonement can be made. It's the purpose of the law here to take the guilt, the blood guilt, away to remove it. Now there's debate about the precise meaning and significance of this ritual act of breaking the neck of a heifer. We're not going to get into all the different options this morning. I want to focus on what I think is absolutely clear, that a substitution is indeed taking place. I think that's the clearest thing that we need to reflect on for a few minutes this morning. A substitution is taking place. The death of a heifer takes the place of another, and through this act of substitution, God promises to accept atonement for blood guilt, according to verse 8. And it's not insignificant that all of this takes place in an uncultivated valley with running water, which likely is meant to invoke uh, the washing away of guilt by means of a substitute. I think that is supported by the fact in verse 6 where the elders of the nearest city are instructed to wash their hands over the heifer as they declare their innocence. But as we connect this to the life and ministry of Jesus, isn't isn't it striking to notice the similar hand-washing ritual that Pontius Pilate performed just before he handed Jesus over to be crucified. In Matthew 27, we read, So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered. Get this, listen to what they said. His blood be on us and on our children. The people of Israel understood corporate solidarity, corporate responsibility, but this is a perverse expression of that. All of the people said, his blood be on us and on our children. And so Pilate released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, 
He handed him over to be crucified. And like the, like the heifer whose neck was broken to remove blood guilt from the people, Jesus died for the sins of his people. He died in our place. He died as a substitute. It's one of the primary ways that the Bible teaches us to understand the meaning and the significance of the death of Jesus on the cross. He did not die for his own sins. He died for the sins of his people. In our place condemned, he stood. This principle of substitution, it just pervades the Bible. It appears in the story of the testing of Abraham when God provided a ram to take the place of Abraham's only son, his beloved son, Isaac. The principle of substitution is portrayed so clearly in the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, where the blood of an animal was used as a substitute, symbolic substitute to atone for the sins of the people. It appears in various Old Testament prophecies. I was looking over the bulletin from last week, and I think, I think you read from Isaiah 53, one of the most well-known prophetic passages where we read, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his stripes, we are healed. This gift of substitution is, of course, realized and fulfilled in the death of Jesus upon the cross. John 10, 11, Jesus says, The good shepherd, I am the good shepherd, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. But I wonder if you've, you've also noticed that there's a significant difference here between this animal and Jesus. And it's not simply that one is an animal and one is a true human being like nature with us. It has to do with the manner of substitution. It has to do with blood. Hebrews 9 verse 22 says, Under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Heifer's neck was broken, but there was no blood shed. But Jesus, the Gospels, of course, are intent on telling us, none of his bones were broken as his blood was shed. Because he is the true sacrificial lamb. He is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. As we sing, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Guilt removed. Justice satisfied. Sins forgiven. This is what we receive by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. So the Gospels tell us that if God were to treat us on a purely individual basis, we're all done for. We don't have a case. If we are going to stand before God on our own two feet, on a purely individual basis, we stand condemned. 
none of us would be saved. For our only hope of salvation is not in ourselves, but in another. We find righteousness not in our own moral action, but in the righteousness of another. Christ Jesus, who is not only our penal substitute, but also our perfect representative. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15.22, For as in Adam all die, because of the actions of one man, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Jesus is the second Adam, the last Adam who succeeds where the first Adam failed. You see, I think in our individualistic culture, our gut response to the Bible's teaching about corporate solidarity is probably to bristle a little bit. I know that's my case. We, we might bristle at the thought of being socially implicated for crimes that we did not personally commit. But as we think about the larger implications of this passage in the world of Scripture, praise God that he does not deal with us as mere individuals. He accepts us and calls us well-beloved, clean, forgiven, spotless, righteous, for the sake of another. He counts us his own for the sake of another to whom we have been united together with all of the saints by grace through faith. You see, in Christ, we can be assured that God has accepted atonement for us because Jesus has been raised from the dead and has ascended to the right hand of the Father because he shed his blood to take away our sins. And so we can know that our guilt has been taken away. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we, we thank you that you do not treat us as our sins deserve. The wonder of the gospel is that you treat us like you treat Jesus. You treat us like your own beloved son. And we, we pray that you would help us to enter more deeply into an awareness of your creative design for us as your image bearers, as those you've created and those you have redeemed in Christ Jesus, that we would not, that we would not isolate ourselves, that we would take responsibility for one another, that we would be one another's uh, brother's keeper appropriately, but even more so as your covenant people, as a new creation in Christ. Help us to appreciate what it means that we have fellowship with you and fellowship with one another in the Lord Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray all of these things. Amen.